I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. Equalization is a vexing problem in Alberta politics, that gnawing sense of grievance many Albertans have that we somehow pay more into Confederation than we get out. That hurt feeling so many Albertans have that the people in the rest of Canada don't seem all that grateful for the services our tax dollars provide them. But is equalization really unfair? How does it actually work? And what should we make of the somewhat convoluted referendum question Albertans will be asked to answer this October 18th? Welcome to the second part of my panel discussion on equalization, recorded as part of a live Zoom town hall, which I hosted in Edmonton on July 28th of 2021. If you haven't listened to the first half, well, go do that first, and I'll wait till you get back. And if you have listened to part one, well, I won't keep you in suspense. Here is the final part of my conversation with five academic experts on equalization. Economists and public policy professors Trevor Toome and Ken Bosenkuhl, historian Mary Janigan, political scientist Jared Wesley, and constitutional law professor Eric Adams. But I mean, what's the political consequence of telling people that you can amend a constitution this way? And, you know, I I think the provincial government is arguing that the Quebec referendum test case proves that somehow this kind of referendum question can force the federal government to the bargaining table. Is that true? Uh, first, to your question, do, do people know what they're actually voting on? I, I don't think so. And I, I worry about heightened expectations after this referendum happens, as we've established, even if there is a majority of people that support it, there's unlikely to be a majority turnout in that election. Does that a mandate to negotiate on? And Eric will talk a little bit about on wh- whether that actually forces other governments to the table. But I think what we're ignoring here are the longer term consequences of not being able to live up to those promises. I worry about people that will feel jilted after this and nothing happens. Equalization is not going to be removed from the Constitution or there aren't going to be meaningful changes um, to fiscal federalism. But I think we're also ignoring what our panelists have made quite clear in discussions to this point, which is that equalization is part of two Gordian knots that need to be very <laughs> need to be handled very delicately. The first is equalization is part of a constitutional bargain, right? It it wasn't as if equalization was the only change that was made to the Canadian constitutional order in 1982. It came alongside, as as Eric mentioned, and as Ken uh, hinted at, it came alongside with providing provinces with uh, control over natural resources, particularly Western provinces. And uh, as anybody who's lived through Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accord eras knows, when you start talking about one part of the constitutional deal, other people want to start talking about other aspects of it. So the worry for those of us that have lived through or studied that period is that we're about to reopen mega constitutional negotiations at a time when we should be probably focusing on economic recovery and putting the pandemic behind us. But the second Gordian knot that equalization is involved in is this mess of fiscal federalism that that Trevor has spent an entire career trying to untangle. And a lot of people forget that those changes that were made to the the, um, equalization formula in the mid 2000s, first under, started under um, uh, the Martin government carried on by by the Harper government, involved not just equalization, but some pretty significant changes to health and social transfers. And those changes to health and social transfers were of immense benefit to Alberta, who for over a decade had been arguing that we need to move those transfers to a per capita basis. 
which I won't go into the details about it, but the, the, the nuts and bolts of it resulted in Alberta gaining about $1 billion extra in healthcare funding yeah. per year. And the real risk politically and fiscally is that once we start to try to untie this knot, right, once we start to try to pick away an equalization in absence of talking about the rest of the constitution, in absence of, of, of considering its impact on changes to those fiscal transfers, Alberta runs the risk of coming out of this whole set of subsequent negotiations further behind than when we started. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be uh, entering into those negotiations, but we should probably be doing it with our eyes wide open. And Albertans should probably know the consequences of taking this first step down that path. All right. I'd like to hear Eric and then Ken. Ken, Ken, so Eric and then Ken, and then I'm going to move to some questions from, from, uh, from our audience. Well, uh, I'm happy to agree and second uh, the points that Jared just made, which I think are, are really important. And, but, but I also think it's important to remember that all of our public figures and politicians, provincial and federal, have a role to play in, keep, in making this country work. And one of the things that concerns me about the referendum and the rhetoric that certainly uh, led up to the announcement of the referendum is that Albertans are being told by their government that their money is being taken and squandered by other provinces. And in particular, to not to put too fine a point at, they're being told that that money is being squandered by Quebec. Yeah. And what does that say to the people that we have in positions of serious leadership in this country, that, that national tensions are being uh, provoked uh, for what gain, I do not know. Um, so that disturbs me, number one. Number two, the implicit suggestion is that this referendum will either A, change the constitution, or B, if it doesn't, then it's somebody's fault that you are being treated so unfairly and that fault is laid at the hands of a federal government that doesn't work for Albertans or other provinces. What does that do to uh, th there's some supposed partisan gain that I suppose comes from framing it in that way. But what does it do for the rest of us uh, who ha have to live in a country that works? What does that do for further provoking Western alienation and a nascent uh, independence movement in Alberta? We are being set up for a, I think, uh, very fractious fall when all of these expectations that have been stoked um, are going to come to absolutely nothing, which I think is is the last part of this question. Um, well, doesn't the secession reference tell you that if you have a referendum, the gates uh, of political change open up before you and all will be made fine? Um, well, the secession reference question in 1998 involved the Supreme Court of Canada being asked right after the cusp of the, almost the breakup of the country itself, could a province, guess which province we're thinking about, could a province unilaterally secede from the Federation? And in 1998, the Supreme Court of Canada said, well, here's what the rules of the game are. The amending formula doesn't talk about independence referenda, but if there is such a referenda to gain independence and remove yourself from the country, then that would give rise to a duty to negotiate some form of constitutional change by the other partners to confederation. Now, 
Does that mean, as the government of Alberta suggests, they're not alone in that, some academics hold this view as well, that any referendum on any constitutional topic then requires, mandates, constitutional negotiations that lead to constitutional change, because that's the wording of the Supreme Court of Canada reference. You've got to negotiate constitutional change after a secession vote. And in my view, that's a complete misreading of that case. There are paragraphs of the decision which speak about that solely in the context of a secession vote. To make that clear, there is a heading in the judgment which says secession in, this is what happens if there's a secession vote. And then the paragraphs discuss the duty to negotiate. There are earlier, and I'll stop in a moment, there are earlier portions of the judgment that say, this is the good news, we live in a democracy, any province can initiate constitutional change. Of course they can, we want them to do so. What does that do? Well, it means that there should be, the court says, constitutional discussions that follow from any uh, effort to invoke constitutional change. Well, that makes sense. So what is Alberta getting? They're getting what they always had. They're getting what the amending formula has always given them, which is that if a single province wants to change the constitution, the other people in confederation have to discuss that issue change the constitution, negotiate a change to the constitution? Absolutely not. That is not happening. And Ken. Um, uh, Jared had some great comments about unintended consequences. So let me, let me add one that we haven't talked about and let me put under the category of a rich province defense of equalization to not go contrary to Mary, but just to add to that. I think there's a very powerful, very strong argument why rich provinces like Alberta should defend equalization. And it goes as follows. In Canada, you have many provinces that couldn't afford to deliver the kind of services that we all love to have our provincial governments deliver in Alberta. And if we didn't have equalization, you would have provinces in Atlantic Canada and Manitoba and perhaps Quebec, although it's a special case, clamoring to the federal government to start delivering programs that we in Alberta want to deliver ourselves. And so equalization should be seen as part of a collective bargain whereby provinces like Alberta get to run more of its own affairs, the sort of core of the firewall letter or the core of 25 years of my political career in Alberta. We, Alberta should do more and be able to run more. Without equalization, if you take the ability of the Atlantic provinces and Manitoba and other provinces to be able to run those programs themselves, suddenly the incentive for the federal government to take over education, education, all the things, healthcare, that I think would be a disaster for Canada goes up. So I think there's a rich province argument in favor of equalization. And I've used the word, this is a small bribe that Alberta pays the rest of the country to let us run our own affairs. It's kind of an inflammatory way to say it. But, but when I talk to my right-wing friends in Alberta, that's the kind of language I use with them. It's like, this is a very small price to pay to allow Alberta to run its own affairs and we've got to keep it here in order that we can keep running our own affairs instead of having other provinces seven provinces with 50 percent of the population starting to ask ottawa to run equal to run education we're going to lose out on that so let's be careful about the unintended consequences so on top of the ones that jared identified i would add that that the the fundamental decentralized nature of canada which in my view makes canada the best country in the world is at risk if we get rid of equalization and that's sort of it 
a rich province, if I dare say so, right-wing defense of equalization. And uh, I'm very happy to make it here and elsewhere. That is terrific. I have a lot of questions from people. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out sort of, you know, we, we've, we've taken up more time than I meant to, but the conversation has been so terrific. I didn't want to cut anyone off. So I'm going to try and get through some questions uh, and not have all five of you answer them, but try to have the people who are you know, most on point so that we can move through the questions. So the first one comes from Lori Bear Kosh. Uh, and one of her questions is, why is Quebec's hydro excluded from the transfer payment calculation? She says, this feeds into the rage of Westerners because Quebec is currently the biggest recipient of the program. Quebec will never be anything but a have-not province if we continue to give them special rules that other provinces don't. So uh, maybe Trevor, uh, I will get you to take that question. Sure. So uh, let me un unpack that in a number of ways. So first, Quebec's hydro revenues, along with British Columbia hydro revenues and Manitoba, those are other large hydro producing provinces, those revenues are included. Aha. And they are included and treated in, in the same way as oil and gas royalties or stumpage fees from forestry and so on. So, so it's there. Um, and indeed, this is why removing resource revenues from the equalization formula formula would in most years lead to substantial increases in payments for Quebec uh, because it does have a large amount of resource revenues. And just for context, if we were to remove resource revenues, then since 2010, Quebec would have received about $9.8 billion in additional equalization payments because they are a large hydro uh, producer. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't unique challenges with hydro revenues in the formula. Absolutely. So uh, Ken earlier noted some adverse incentive uh, issues with equalization. I think hydro is potentially the starkest one. So think about where these revenues come from. They come from generating electricity and selling it to consumers who are resident of your province. And you as a government can kind of choose what those electricity prices are and so can effectively choose how much hydro revenues come in. So a, a government can potentially, uh, let's say, underprice power in their province, having lower revenues, and therefore appearing to have a lower fiscal capacity than they, quote, really do. And so in Quebec's case, I mean, whether or not this is an actual choice being made by the government, I'll, I'll leave that to others, but mechanically. Uh, Quebec's equalization entitlement uh, this year of $13.1 billion, if they were to raise power prices by one cent per kilowatt hour, uh, their equalization payment would decline by almost $900 million. And so if the Quebec government is, is not choosing to set power prices in a way that it considers that, they probably should, uh, just from their own uh perspective there. So, so there are real issues there and there are ways to address it. And, and that's where some productive engagement on formula design uh, should be had. Absolutely. But it's more than just Quebec, BC and Manitoba um, as well. And more than just hydro. If we were to drop royalty rates, for example, then our fiscal capacity would also appear uh, to be to be lower. And so these are these are some of the challenges with the the formulas design that do require some thoughtful uh, engagement on the issue. All right. I have a question from Knut Peterson. Uh, and maybe I'll send this to, to Ken or Ken and then Trevor. Uh, 
If Alberta ever gets around to implementing a provincial sales tax, would that affect the current amount of money that Alberta pays in equalization? No. Okay. Uh, that was simple. Um, <laughs> well, just, just quickly to, to follow up there, Alberta pays nothing uh, yes. into- Yes, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it, you meant Albertans. Albertans. Yes. And so would us changing our, our tax um, structure to include, say, an HST, doesn't matter what rate that is. We could bring one in at 1% or 5% or 20% not a single dollar would change in terms of the total size of the program uh, paid out from Ottawa. And it wouldn't result in Alberta receiving uh, anything more than the zero that it, it currently does. All right. Sheldon Rose question. Are there tax sources which are excluded from the formula? And could such uh, an exclusion change the way uh, payments are made? So, so there are some important revenue sources that, that are excluded. I think a big one that's super relevant, uh, at least in Alberta's case, is investment income. So the Heritage Fund. We have, we have a large pool of savings uh, in Alberta, $20 billion plus in the Heritage Funds and various endowment funds, kicking out between typically 2 and $3 billion a year, and, and that's excluded. Um, the rationale for its exclusion is kind of similar to the rationale that can put forward to exclude resource revenues. It's earnings off of a capital asset. And so it's very, it's fundamentally different than, than taxation. So yeah, including things uh, like that would indeed change the allocation of the payments, but again, wouldn't result in Alberta receiving anything. I mean, including that would actually increase our fiscal capacity even more. All right. This is a question that I don't know if, you can answer, but maybe Jared would take a stab at it. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I've lost the name of the person. This is a question from Jean, who asks, do you have any idea where the funding for the yes side of this referendum is coming from? Well, we, we do know that the provincial government changed legislation to allow government members, in other words, cabinet ministers to campaign on behalf of one side or another of a provincial referendum. So that's the first time that that's happened in this province. Um, you know, just from an observer standpoint, I'd like to think of myself as pretty plugged in, but, but we haven't seen a lot of um, campaigning in, in favor of it, aside from a few responses at the podium to in, 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 in terms of press conferences from other, um, you know, on other topics like COVID and so on. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, it, to the extent that there is or could be a campaign in favor of removing equalization from the constitution, it would probably be funded by the government side. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't anticipate seeing massive, uh, you know, billboards or TV or radio ads on one side or another of this campaign. And I think that that's because of two, for two very quick reasons. First is um, this, this, as much as we want to talk about the ins and outs of this formula and the program, this referendum has nothing to do with the formula or the program. As we've made clear today, this is about the principle of sharing within a federation. And that principle is, in, is in, you know, enshrined in the constitution. And this is my second point, for a government um, within Canada, led by uh, someone who considers himself to be a federalist, it's difficult to make an argument against sharing, right? And we can make an, an argument against, fair, against uh, you know, the, this whole entire system as being unfair. But I think that the government in trying to, you know, thread the needle with this constitutional argument that we have to make it about the constitution because that will require in their minds that the rest of Canada sit down and negotiate with us by bringing the constitution into it, they've really closed off conversations like we're having right now about ways that equalization as a formula could be improved. 
Um, you know, we're being forced to, to, to talk about whether we want to share with the rest of Canada. Um, and again, our public opinion research suggests that more Albertans are in the mood to build bridges with the rest of Canada right now, particularly after the pandemic. We've seen actually a surge in support for the rest of Canada among Albertans than they are to, to borrow um, to borrow Ken's phrase to build a firewall around Alberta. Um, and, and so it, it'll be interesting to see who actually turns out to vote this fall. Yeah, that is the interesting question. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's not, I, I don't want to single out any order of government, any politician, because I'm seeing this from almost everyone right now. It's like a willful misunderstanding of constitutional conventions and the written constitution itself. Um, there was a story today, you know, someone, someone um, uh, suggesting that maybe the governor general shouldn't call an election just because the prime minister asks. And I mean, Eric, I guess, um, what, what mischief is made? Or what misunderstandings grow up when people all across the political spectrum, you know, whether, you know, they want the queen to do this, they want the governor general to that, they want the constitution, you know, are we painting ourselves into a, a society where people lack the, the political literacy to understand the way in which they are actually governed? Well, I think you're right to, to put, I think, this referendum in a, in a larger narrative about ways in which constitutional literacy uh, is, I think, sometimes, or maybe it's constitutional illiteracy is being exploited for partisan ends. And that's a bad state of affairs in your, in your constitutional uh, uh, democracy, because uh, when that happens, when, there's, when, when the public is led to believe that this, in fact, is all just about power relations, um, that there are, in fact, are no real rules of the game that govern us, if everything is up for grabs, then you begin to lose track of the threads that, that bind us into a community uh, of, of a functioning nation. And I don't think we need to be overly dramatic here by looking south of the border to see what can happen when, when you begin to erode constitutional norms and the institutions uh, that I think stand above partisan politics that are so crucial to the functioning of a democracy. And that includes the crown and the office of the governor general. That includes Elections Canada. That includes, in some respects, the constitution itself. It's, it's, of course, it's a political document with lots of constitutional politics as part of it. You can't pull, fully pull that apart. But there are elements of our constitutional lives together that need to be respected by not only citizens, but especially by the players of the game. And all the steps that we take that begin to erode that notion, erode those understandings, go a little bit further, stoke that misunderstanding a little bit more for a very short-term supposed political gain, we all lose. We all lose in that equation. And I'm afraid to say it, to be blunt, that is what is happening with this equalization referendum. I'm Paula Simons, independent senator from Alberta, and you've been listening to my town hall on equalization, featuring the wisdom and insights of Dr. Trevor Toome, an economics professor at the University of Calgary, Dr. Mary Janigan, an historian and the author of the book The Art of Sharing, political scientist Dr. Jared Wesley from the University of Alberta, Eric Adams, the vice dean of the University of Alberta School of Law, 
and Ken Bosenkuhl of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. My thanks to everyone who took part in our live town hall and who asked such thoughtful questions. And my very big thanks to Dina Dong, who produced the original live event, and to Ame Charnalia, who turned that event into this podcast. If this is your first time listening to Alberta Unbound, I hope you'll be intrigued enough to sample our back catalog, full of fascinating conversations with passionate Albertans, conversations that may give you a whole new perspective on this province. Thanks for listening. Merci and hi hi.